1: and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode one nine seven, Dissenters, Radicals, and the Methodists. We've spent the last few episodes talking about the dichotomy of Wales in the eighteenth century. As other parts of the United Kingdom continue to settle into their own various paths, the Welsh path has become distinct culturally. But yet politically and militarily and in a lot of other ways has become intermixed with the rest of the United Kingdom, or what will be the United Kingdom shortly, into a very British-focused ideal. Within that, you have the rise of scientific study, a general view of a world which came to be defined no longer by its strictly theistic understandings of life and nature, and the world around them, solely based on biblical understandings or understandings based on classical literature about the body, the sense of what nature was and is in the world around them, all began to change. This developed into what is later called the Enlightenment, a period which is built on the foundations of what becomes modern society. The concept of church and state and the rights of humanity, the understandings of the universe, the nature of the body began to be studied in much more depth. Certainly, we have not reached microbiology or the study of yet unknown fossil records, but we are seeing glimpses of what would become of these things in the following century. But driving a lot of this change were a group, at least in England, known as the Radicals. In the previous century, the Whig Party, although not in the way we think of them now, at least in the party format, in a way, they seemed more like a movement than what we would consider, as I said, a formal, organized party of a political nature. But either way, they formed around the concept of keeping Britain away from absolute monarchy and maintaining the parliamentary and aristocratic systems, which would help to keep the king and the monarch's powers in check. As they moved forward in the decades, the Whigs were initially, as I said, seen as the party of religious tolerance and the protection of the aristocracy. Yet among their ranks were others whose ideas were now starting to come to the fore, as philosophies and ideas started to differ from what was initially a more conservative protection of the current order to something quite a bit different. In the 18th century, from within this group emerged others known as radical Whigs, a group of men known for their belief that the people were the sovereign and not the monarch, and that within this government, it ruled only with the consent of the people. Their philosophical ideals were incredibly influential on the colonies, but at this point less so in England. The political ideas that founded this belief system or this understanding or this political party, depending on how you want to define it, became receptive to those who were living in the Americas where the ideas of the rights of the governed were perceived as being threatened by the monarch. The idea of being responsible to the people, first and foremost, was critical to their evaluations of how the monarch was treating them be it the so-called intolerable acts, those pieces of legislation which would inherently make them seem like they did not have control of their own lives or control of their own finances, and that the government had too much control. All of this kind of drove the American understanding of how they should be governed, and thus the reason why terms like uh, no Taxation without representation became a very popular cry amongst the early uh, revolutionaries. Their philosophical ideas, of course, created a sense that everything should be decentralized from being controlled by the government, or at least contained by the government in a way that it was the government that spoke to the people, not the other way around. And as I said, this was incredibly influential if you're in the colonies where this concept that the government who rules you lives thousands of miles away, doesn't understand you, doesn't know you, has no concept of your struggles or your problems, who only sees you as a piggy bank for whatever they want, becomes much more divisive. And it's something that will continue to be an issue between the colonies and their home islands or home countries. And especially with people who have moved from those home countries and to these colonies. So these words and ideas of the radical Whigs, which weren't really landing at this point in England and in Wales and in Scotland were having big time influence in America, obviously, and they were lauded for their views and their ideals But as time would move on and those ideals were perceived to be associated with the French Revolution, which was conceived by the European monarchies as being an extremely dangerous thing, suddenly those ideas were seen as almost a level of traitorous. Yet, Wales had its turn. As more and more people were rising into the middle class and economically growing, or in some cases, into the upper levels of wealth in the merchant class, the their success meant that they were slowly seeing their wealth increase while struggling against old political and religious systems, which benefited the nobility and particularly the English gentry that were acquiring large parcels of land throughout Wales at the time. There was a feeling that change would be good and maybe... These discussions about fairness, rights, and larger considerations of democracy and free religious worship were truly representative of the people. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfast, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. If by people you mean men, uh, that's something to keep in mind when we talk about the rights of humanity and the rights. of I mean, it was all translated into the rights of men. And as we all know, at this point in time, European men. But not, I mean, that's going to be the case regardless. Philosophy in Britain was in flux about these ideas. And as the British dominion was growing around the world, it created even more angst and anxiety in some minds as the blooming kingdom was now becoming an empire as it acquired more and more land and more and more colonies as these would switch hands depending on which war such as what would happen between France and Britain new specifically during the seven years war which was the next best thing to a world war we had seen ...up until we actually had a proper one in in 1914. These saw massive areas switch from France and Spain to Britain... ...and would have an influence going forward in the rest of the century... ...and one could argue for the rest of the British Empire. New France, which consisted largely of what is now the provinces of Ontario and Quebec... ...India and Florida all fell to the British in the eventual treaty. India didn't exactly fall to the British. It was more by the way that the treaties were signed because while the French kept their holdings, they lost all their protection because they couldn't have a fort and they couldn't have any way of protecting themselves should something go wrong. So, of course, that immediately meant that most of them fell by the wayside. And of course, as they did, the East India Company moved in and suddenly India went from being a largely French concern with some English to being a only English concern. And that would, of course, set the stage for what would then be called the British Empire. Of course, New France becomes an issue for America because the colonies, while they did gather in Florida also have to deal with this new French idea, which the members of New France initially start out with the idea that they were going to be enforced to become either English or leave, much like what was done to the Acadians who moved down to Louisiana. However, later, as the various problems were happening between the 13 colonies, and the British homeland, there became a desire to protect New France from these other colonies, and thus they started to protect their rights, creating yet another point of religious tolerance that had not really been there before. And, of course, angering the 13 colonies, it becomes a part of their many issues of being upset about various things, and the Quebec Act is definitely one of those. This takes us far away from Wales, but you have to understand kind of, all of the dynamics that are going on in the latter half of the 18th century are massively influential for what comes later, and everything from slaves' rights to and the eventual abolition of slavery in Britain, the concepts of democracy and how it changes happen be, as an outgrowth of the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So all of these things have a bearing on what happens later, but at this point, You know, the government's still reacting to all of this. So to go back and and focus back in on what we were talking about, um, one aspect of this colony building would be the massive urbanization and financial control that was now being centered in London. And as we've mentioned over previous episodes, this was creating a flood of population into the city and creating a cultural milieu... Of so many different ideas and concepts, and allowing pockets of people to expand and grow and understand themselves while being away from their homelands, wherever those might be. Thus, the reason why there were so many Welsh people in London learning, understanding, and getting closer to their own culture back home because they were collecting and talking amongst themselves something that wasn't happening to any great degree in the colonies. Unlike a lot of the other colonies that were being driven by Scottish immigration or Irish emigration, the Welsh emigration patterns throughout the New World, for the most part, were fairly broad, and thus there wasn't quite the enclaves. Yes, there were some in Pennsylvania, but Outside of that, until you get to Patagonia many years later, you don't have a Welsh enclave in the way we would think about it. Even Utah would become more of a Welsh enclave, which we'll discuss a little bit later, than most of the colonies were at this point. Which is fascinating to see, and it explains why when we look at what happened and why the Welsh dysphoria doesn't have the same links to the homeland the way so many others do or at least the way we would think they would do, so that in a way, in places like America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, even though there are links to whales in the population, in their ancestry, outside of that immediate ancestry, there's no understanding or no concept or very little for many, many years. And in fact, of course, growing up, as I would mention, my ancestry comes from Wales. Many people in Canada had no clue what I was talking about and, of course, would then mock you about fishes and things of that nature. So you had to sort of re-educate people on what that was. And the reason was is because there wasn't the same sort of influence the way you have with Ireland or with Scotland in various parts of Canada and the United States. Now, to focus in on what we're actually discussing here, we're going to move back to Britain. Yet... All of this comes as Britain continued to change and grow. Protestants that had ruled England at the time and many others began to predict the coming of the millennium, the coming of Christ, the second coming, and it drove some of them, like the Puritans, into trying to create their own version of a Christian-centric kingdom. The aspect of this that I think most people didn't see coming or maybe didn't fully understand is that links to that in Protestantism is strongly linked to the idea that the Jews have to return to their homeland. And because of course, in biblical terms, they are bringing in the second coming. So all that being said, suddenly they were very protective of the idea of Jews coming To England for the first time in the 1600s, in part not because they wanted to really protect Jewish culture or Jewish people or the Jewish religion, but to eventually, instead of through force, through Christian living, convert them to Christianity and thus create a Jewish-Christian faith group who would then lead the charge back to Israel to bring about the coming of Christ. All of this has to be understood in why suddenly after 400 years, the Jewish populations are now being allowed into England. It's a bumpy road. There's still not exactly, you know, complete tolerance. There were still people who, you know, were not happy that Jewish people were here. And on occasions, you know, Prejudice still continued amongst those groups, but this was the first time that religious worship from a community outside of Christianity was allowed into England, Wales, and Scotland for the better part of a thousand years. Now, of course, being a Catholic was still not allowed in the public platform or the public place, at least not in open worship, but... There were movements of new Protestant philosophies entering the country. At the same time, the government itself was moving away from its firm position on government control of faith. Some of the earliest movements towards ending the unity of the church and state began in the 18th century as the push toward a new view on the rights of humanity and the freedom to worship became more important. In England in the 17th and 18th centuries, religious dissent had become more popular and more and more branches of various Protestant faiths continued to rise in the era of the Commonwealth. These followers would find some ground with James and Charles, mostly because they wanted to help protect the Catholics against the anti-Catholic Protestants, but nonetheless, they gained placement in society. As the century turned, these groups slowly transitioned from simply being a sideshow to creating faith communities of some strength in Britain and also in their colonies. And as they did so, initially, some would remain within the fold of Anglicanism while stirring animosity towards the involvement of government in religious affairs and vice versa. In the 18th century, one group of dissenters became known as the rational dissenters. They believed that the state's religion impeded on the freedom of conscience. They were fiercely opposed to the hierarchical nature and structure of the Anglican Church and the financial ties between it and the government. Like other moderate Anglicans, they desired an educated ministry and an orderly church, modeling similar to the Catholic Church, but they based their opinion on the Bible and on reason rather than the appeals to tradition and authority, something that was key to their point for continental Protestants that had been a struggle between them and the more Catholic-like Anglican Church, where the hierarchy and deference to the king was seen as a key ingredient to religious observance. These dissenters were went further by rejecting doctrines such as original sin and the Trinity, something that would be seen as scandalous later on and before that, arguing that they were irrational. Rational dissenters believed that Christianity and the faith could be dissected and evaluated using newly emerging disciplines of science, and because of that was stronger in its belief in God, and that would be the result of all of this change in how they worshipped. and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Now, to return to Wales and our story, other dissenting movements started to influence more and more people throughout the British Isles, and for Wales— The longest-lasting and most successful of these would be the Methodists. Methodists were Anglicans who had become disenfranchised by their belief and a push towards a more aggressive missionary and uh, preaching movement. Spreading faith and evangelical fervor, these men became active in trying to get the fires of spiritual opportunity burning in the hearts of the British and colonials alike. The origins of the Methodists come from Charles and John Wesley, who started a club at Oxford to practice their ideals of religious worship. They would practice their faith in these clubs, which included a number of holy activities, including helping the poor and visiting prisoners. John was also proactive in writing hymns for his new faith, creating a tradition of worship through English music. Oz often happens when someone or some group is doing something considered odd or unusual, they were mocked by their fellow students. The society that they belonged to were labeled as Methodist because of the way that they used rule and method to go about their religious affairs. John, who was the leader of this club, took this attempted mockery and turned it as a title of honor, thus the name Methodist. Much like the many Protestant and early Christian faiths, early disagreements over the nature and purpose of God would eventually drive these Methodists apart. Wesley, for example, came to conclude that Calvinist predetermination was wrong, that this concept that there was going to be a predetermined number of people that were going to heaven and that had been set aside before their birth seemed to him against the understanding of Christianity. His version of Methodism— became popular in America, but was not as popular with a number of others who stuck to these Calvinistic ideals in England, Wales, and Scotland. Some of those early leaders, active in Wales at the time, would set the early foundations for Methodism in the 1730s. And now we're going to get into the Welsh Methodists and their role and their influence. Among these early founders was Howell Harris, a layman who had become an itinerant preacher after a religious conversion in 1735. Itinerant just means that he wasn't ordained as a preacher. He decided to become one himself through conversion or other means and would set about trying to try and create converts. Harris, after he'd been converted to the Methodist position, began to travel across Wales trying to raise more and more converts. As you can imagine, this did not always go well for him, as he was abused at times and had to escape death threats, as he tried his best to spread his faith. But eventually, his message and message began to reach people. Two years later, he met another uh, large figure in the Welsh Methodist faith named Daniel Rowland, another key founder, of course. Rowland had been a curate in the parishes at Nant Kunle and Llangitho. He also had a moment of conversion after meeting with Griffiths Jones, the educator extraordinaire we mentioned last episode. Even with that conversion and his early preaching, he remained a curate for almost 30 years in his Anglican parish. Of course, this was because Methodism was not seen, at least initially, as separate from the Anglican faith that would come later. Neither men flourished with their attempts at conversion at the time they met in 1737, but as they hit it off, they immediately began working towards founding Methodist associations across Wales. Eventually, however, doctrinal and personal differences between the two men led to an estrangement between Harris and Rowland from specifically Harris dropping out of the Welsh Methodists in 1750. He then established a community or in quotes, family at Triveca. But he continued to be an itinerant preacher nonetheless, and he would eventually be reconciled with the Welsh Methodists after several years. Roland, however, would continue to develop his version of Methodism, something that would cause the Anglican church authorities to act as they deprived him of his curacy finally in 1763. This was, however, unpopular with his parishioners who, had actually enjoyed and liked him in that role. Following this, he established a Methodist cause in Llangetho and by 1770 was said to be attracting congregations of over a thousand, making it necessary for him to take it away from being an indoor meeting to an outdoor one, something that would be copied as it was seen as an excellent way to gather large revivalist camps and so it became something of a model for others the welsh leaders sided eventually in the dispute between wesley and the more calvinist george whitfield and the early leaders in the various parts of the english methodist movement this of course meant that the calvinist ideas became the more popular one Whereas Wesley's ideas of free grace, which were built around an Armenian uh, doctrine, based on the idea that you could were not predetermined to be accepted or not accepted into heaven, and that as long as you accepted Christ's grace, you would still have a place in heaven, something that went against the Calvinist ideals. This, of course, as I said earlier, was something that was very popular in the American colonies, but less so in Britain and especially in Wales. Now, the final key important member of the Welsh Methodists and their great uh, expansion in this era was a hymnist by the name of William Williams. He was born in 1717 to a nonconformist family in Tlanfer Ar i he was educated locally and then at a nonconformist academy near Talgarth. He was intended to study medicine that was changed around 1738 when he converted by preachings of Howell Harris to methodism. Even though he was a nonconformist and a believer in methodism, he did join the Anglican Church as a deacon and then served as a curate. Yet by 1742 His parishioners were very unhappy with his Methodist ideals and reported his activities to the Archdeacon's Court in Brecon. A year later, when Williams applied to become an ordained preacher, he was rejected by those same Anglican authorities who were unhappy with his Reformist ideals. With his heart set on being a preacher, he finally decided to become a proper Methodist preacher and dropped out of his Anglican roles. Williams would then travel throughout Wales, preaching while partly supporting his ministry by selling tea. He would gain converts and set up fellowship meetings called Celedu, and he would then administer them, maintain them, and continue on while doing all of this to the next area when he continued his conversion missions across the country. This meant that he was setting up, controlling, administering, a number of these small societies around Wales and doing his best to hold it all together. Of course, today he is better known as a hymn writer and as a contributor to songs sung in Methodist churches around Wales, both in English and in Welsh, and would contribute poetry as part of his faith. His best-known hymn... And I apologize in advance that I'm going to say the Welsh wrong. I will do my best. Argo with arwen Tuir an This is translated in English as Lord Lead Us Through the Wilderness. But if you've attended a church in English, it is much better known by two other titles. Uh, and in fact, I do remember hearing this song while I was in Canada long before I heard the other version... The original version I heard was called "Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah," but it's probably better known these days through the uh, in England and Wales as "Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer," which, of course, is now more or less known as "Bread of Heaven." The music usually played with the song is "Cumbranda" from John Hume's. ...a song which, again, I'm very familiar with... ...because it was used for multiple of things in the past... ...and it blew my mind when I first heard Bread of Heaven... ...because I associated it with the other translation of the song... ...or the other version of the song... ...and so it was funny to kind of hear these two very different versions of it... ...and then, of course, you hear the Welsh rugby version of it... so ...which, of course is probably where a lot of people know it from. So it's fascinating to understand that. And as of right now, you're actually hearing the song. So after these early leaders passed on and the leadership of the Methodist movement in Wales passed forward to Thomas Charles, who was himself an ordained Anglican priest who'd been influenced by the Methodist revival as a student, he had still not repudiated his own ordination, but finally, circumstances, of course, would lead him to ordain himself, as well as others, into the Methodist ministry in 1811. Thus, Methodism in Wales, which until that time had remained within the Anglican worship and church, separated itself and became a separate entity from the Church of England in Wales, as it was then called and became the separate church, setting up two synods or associations which were then formed from this new church, one for South Wales and one for North Wales, and an ever-increasing number of people would join this faith, which would then become known as the Presbyterian faith in more modern understanding of the worship of it. With all that said and done, with that story now told, and I think the fascinating things that come out of it that we're still kind of understanding and dealing with. It's amazing to see just how much influence on modern society the 1700s had to Wales, to England, to America, to Canada, to Australia, to New Zealand, and all the other colonies that would become countries later, how much of this came out of this period of change, of scientific discovery of attitudes about religion and how to deal with religious faith within the state and how to separate those two, how rights of humanity were suddenly important to more than just a few philosophers that drove an independence movement that would create an entirely new country, which today is one of the most powerful in the world. All of these things are an outgrowth of this era. And as we transition into the Victorian period and the early 1800s, we're going to see it a change yet again. But in the same time, we're setting the stage for much of what modern Wales is defined as today. And it's fascinating to see how it came about with all that said, thank you all for listening. I hope you have yourselves a great day if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at Welsh History podcast at gmail.com. You can always reach out to me as well on Twitter. I have said before, I don't call it X uh, at Welsh History Pod, or you can always reach me on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to help the podcast moving forward in helping to fund the research that I do for it, please consider. Donating at patreon.com forward slash welsh history pod or welsh history, sorry. Um, And finally, if you would like to, you can check out the podcast on its YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at symbol now welsh history podcast. If you go there, you will find that we are re-uploading all the audio podcasts that we turned into a video format. Um, Not very fancy, but it is there. And we are going to continue to add more things as we go into the autumn. I expect to start adding videos there of probably shorter length than the podcast and possibly doing some related things with the podcast. More importantly, however, in the short run, in a few weeks, we are almost to our 200th episode. We will be doing a video podcast as well as an audio form of that And I hope you will join me on whichever you prefer. And if you have any questions that you want me to answer going into that podcast, I would be very happy. I have a few, but I would love to have some more. So if you've got some burning ideas, questions, family history related things you want to ask, certainly go ahead. I may not know the answers, but I will try and do my best to look them up for you. With all that said and done, thank you, everybody. Have yourselves a great day. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.